Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This one is slightly different. It was recorded live at the BFI, which is very exciting. And it's also an hour long. Actually, it's over an hour long, so it's a bit of a special episode. The guest is Alice Lowe. She is an actress, director and writer, mainly in comedy. She's probably best known for her roles in the Garth Marenghi series, the lead and co-writer of the 2012 film Sightseers, which is awesome. And she's also the writer and director of a new comedy horror called Prevenge that's out in cinemas now and also just launched in America. I talked to her in this episode about her career and we go into lots of detail around motherhood, filming, the TV and film industry, how long it takes to make a film, all of the things that I don't know much about. So I hope you enjoy it and thank you so much to the BFI for hosting the podcast live. It was a first for us both. I look forward to doing more. Here it is. Hi everyone. So thank you so much Anna for inviting us. So excited <laughs> to be with you. Um, just a little bit about the podcast. So it started off with a dodgy Skype call to Liz Gilbert who is the author of Eat, Pray, Love. It's kind of grown from there. Um, I'm on my 65th episode I think this one's going to be which is really exciting to kind of know that podcasting is like on the rise and there's such an appetite for it. Yeah, I normally record in like a little spare room or a creepy hotel room or a cupboard. So this is this is an, this upgrade. Is an upgrade. This is great. <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you. I can be um, creepy if you like. Well, the film is kind of creepy. Okay. Um, more on that later. I don't need to try that hard. Um, then. <laughs> so I'm going to do the bit where I reel off how amazing you are, and you have to like okay. just sit there and I'll feel. I'll pretend kind of... that I'm blushing. Like... <laughs> So I've been a massive fan of yours for ages. That's the awkward bit out of the way. But um, 2012 was when Sightseers came out, and that was huge and hilarious and got me into that black comedy genre. I don't think I'd really seen much of it before or enjoyed it in that way. So was really excited about Prevenge, which obviously we're going to talk about loads because that came out um, this year. You've been in all sorts of things like Garth Marenghi, The Hot Fuzz, which is my ultimate hangover film. So it's one of my favourite films. Um, And The Mighty Boosh, all sorts of things. But if you look Alice up on Wikipedia, you will scroll for a long time. (laughs) You've done so much. Um, So thank you so much for coming. It's thank you. Really Thanks lovely for having me. to have you. It's so like, it's nice to have an audience as well because yeah. it's like you know it's like having a nice night in with a really big sofa <laughs> with lots of people on it. That is how it feels. <laughs> but revenge, in a nutshell, is a revenge comedy slasher horror film, isn't it? Yeah. And I love how revenge was like a joke title, was it? It was, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know how many people know about the background of the film, but in a nutshell, I, I, I really had to be dragged kicking in and screaming into making a film. Because I did want to make a film, but I didn't want to do it pregnant, necessarily. Um, and so I almost made the film out of a kind of annoyance and irritation that someone was asking me to do something. And I was like, oh, God, leave me alone. And then I was like, oh, actually, maybe I should do this because I'm a freelancer and the government really treats freelancers really well as we know from the recent budget um, and I you know I was just terrified about maternity leave really and what was going to happen to my career and all of that kind of thing so um, I kind of thought what can I do what kind of character would I play whilst pregnant and I decided that I would do it like a revenge 
sort of spree thriller, <laughs> you know, as you do. And, uh, like, jokingly, I said to the execs, like, oh, we'd call it re uh, Prevenge, like pregnancy plus revenge. And I was like, that's rubbish, we won't use it. <laughs> we'll call it something else, that'll be a working title. But it just stuck, and uh, we couldn't it's get catchy. rid of it. It's so catchy. It's catchy, you sort of remember it. And I think in the internet sort of age, it's not a bad thing to invent a word, really, and, yeah. and use it, because it means that people find the website yeah, easily exactly. and stuff like SEO, that. SEO, value right there. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that, I guess, you are actually seven and a half months pregnant in it. Like, yes. That is actually your bump. But it's interesting when people say, like, are you like the character? And I feel like that is quite a, when it's a woman, when it's a female actress, people are more likely to be like, is it, has it come from a place of like <laughs> autobiographical or whatever? But I was just thinking that about even like something like girls, when people think that Lena's Hannah and they think all of the characters are all merged in, but mm. you're obviously not like Ruth because you don't murder no, people. No, I mean, it's interesting. No, I don't murder people. As far as we know, I've not been caught <laughs> thus far. Um, yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. I, in some ways, though, I would say that most of my work is, it comes from an element of me, it's from a part of me. But that's something that I've sort of been in denial about for a long time, that I'm kind of like, you know, in a, in a way, they're all sort of aspects of me, or they're sort of parallel lives, characters that... Because I, I like all my characters, I don't look down on them, I don't go, oh, what an awful person. I kind of feel like, no, I care about this. It's like a child, you know, like the characters that you play, they are like sort of your wayward children in a way that you you know you, you care about them but they're just doing bad things yeah um so i would say that there's definitely parts of me within there and and you know there's it's i kind of say that it's parts of my fears about pregnancy that i put into the film and took it to an extreme place you know but yeah it is kind of a, a psychological controlled experiment it's not like i'm this crazy sort of people sort of sometimes say to me oh, God, you must have had a horrible pregnancy. I'm like, no, I had a lovely pregnancy. It was really nice. But you wouldn't know that from watching the film. Yeah, not, not necessarily. <laughs> it's quite dark, you know, in content. But I kind of think that I exorcised all of the scary things about pregnancy by making the film. Because it was like all the things I was worried about, I made the film about it, and then it, those things didn't happen. Like, I was scared that I wouldn't like the baby. Is it the, weird you know, that now, because your daughter's 15 months, is it? Yes. that she's now always going to be kind of documented in, in this way, that like she's <laughs> in the film. It's, it's quite funny. It is funny, but I think, I don't know, part of me thinks, well, if you grow up with an actor as a parent, you kind of probably think it's normal to be on screen anyway. And then I think plus, like, our internet age where everyone's children are on screen all the time anyway, I wonder if she'll even be that bothered, mm, really. True. I mean, it's like, you know, yesterday, my whole day was just taken up with that guy with the two kids coming in. <laughs> and they're like celebrities now. They're much bigger celebrities than my daughter's ever going to be from being in an indie movie for 30 seconds. Um, I thought we could talk about as well the fact that um, when we talk about the film, I didn't know it was made in 11 days. I know yeah. that you were on a deadline because obviously you were going to give birth quite yeah. soon. But um, you also made a film before that, uh, The B Black Mountain Poets, and that yeah. was made in five days. Yeah. I don't know much about filmmaking. <laughs> I have been on a set once, and I was like, wow, there's so many people here. It was that intense? Um, do you prefer working like that? Um, I do quite like working like that. I mean, I've worked on low-budget stuff for a long time. So for me, the idea of, you know, work keeping working with your wits about you and having to think 
laterally and um, having to work really quickly and you're, you're sort of relying on the performances but there's a kind of adrenalised atmosphere. Um, I like that. I think, you you know, if you haven't got million, multi-million dollar explosions and special effects, what you have got, got is a kind of urgency in the performance and you do see a kind of tension when, because sometimes we were just doing it with one take, you know, it was like, guys, we've, you know, we've got to get this now with this shot. And, and the actors do deliver. It's, it's more like a bit of theatre. And what happens is the crew around you are really also like, are we going to get it? And they become really invested in the performances rather than people just being like, you know, what's going on? Right, they're still doing that scene. You know, and they're not as bothered. They're just like, when's lunch? Sort yeah. of thing. Um, <laughs> it's a bit mean towards crews, but anyone can get like that. The actors can get like that as well. Like, oh my God, how long is it going to take to relight this? You know, and I don't do any of that. I much prefer to just be keeping working all the time and rather than watching playback I'd rather be shooting again you yeah. know um so would you say you're not a perfectionist in any way no as in because you could roll with things on the day and it was really flexible and yeah I'm I'm I, I would rather roll with stuff really and I like the excitement of not knowing what's going to happen it's to me like the script is plan b mm. because plan a is what you're hoping you're going to find that is even better than what you plan to do yeah. and like it's like this crazy thing where people get really obsessed because they obsess about filmmaking and they watch all of their heroes and the films and they're like look at this shot so I'm gonna have this shot that's really important and la, la, la. and you're like there's a rainbow over there and you know that looks amazing why aren't we getting that why are we getting this you know and, and that's how I feel about it that I'm like sometimes you can be so myopic about getting your perfect shot because you're trying to be you're trying to make Citizen Kane which is highly unlikely that you are making Citizen Kane um, you know <laughs> be some geniuses out there that are able to do that but for me I'm like you know just keep your eyes open and your ears open same with performances there might be something that comes up that is better than mm. what's been scripted or something that's making people laugh and you just go why wouldn't you go with that you know you can it's digital you can you can shoot as much as you like it's not like you're shooting on film where every second counts you know and and means money um yeah. you know it's it's like you can just keep shooting because that was the bit that I, uh, there was something that I read the other day which made me laugh. There's a bit, no spoilers obviously, but there's a bit in the film with um, some testicles <laughs> and apparently they were a prop that were like, was just lying around that you threw <laughs> in. I was just thinking, that's crazy that it was literally just a prop that you well, thought, oh, let's just put those in. Well, Steve Oram, who I work with on Sightseers, he'd made a film called R. Um, it's spelled with eight A's and a H. He just decided to make it quite difficult for people to find his film on the internet by <laughs> like making a, a word that's quite difficult to find. But anyway, he'd used Dan Martin for his special effects, who's very talented, practical special effects designer. And um, he worked on Sightseers as well. And I kind of met up with him and sort of said, look, I've got seven kills here. They've got to be different enough to keep people interested but they've got to be similar enough to all be the same person doing it also it's a pregnant woman doing it so how realistic is it that she could kill someone with a single slash or whatever so you're kind of it's a mixture of sort of practicality but also artist you know you're trying to think cinematically as well um and one of the things he said well i've got a pair of balls left over from <laughs> r and i was like yes we can definitely use that and uh 
And that was how they got used, because they were just there. That's hilarious. Because there's also the, the the guy that's kind of like a skeleton painted, and wasn't mm. he? Didn't he walk past randomly? He was just. And then just you got a, him to sign a consent form. Yeah, he like, was you're a gen- be in the film. It's some of my. It's my favourite shot. I don't know how many people have actually seen the film, but um, you'll have to go and see it now. But the, there's a shot in it where um, there it, it's me walking around Cardiff in Hallow- at Halloween, and I wanted to shoot genuinely on Halloween we actually couldn't have afforded to do it in any other way I was sort of like I've been to Cardiff on Halloween I know what happens <laughs> and um, if we can get that on camera it'll be amazing and I, there was just this underpass that I was walking down and I'm dressed in a Halloween costume as well and this guy just emerged and I swear he looked exactly like Nicholas Holt as well from uh, Maybe it was him. from Mad Max and other things skins etc um, wearing just like no wallet or anything, just like a skin tight skeleton costume and full skeleton makeup. And he was just walking along like that down this underpass. And I was like, oh my God, we have to shoot this guy. And I was like, chase him, chase him, see if he. And uh, we were like, would you be in the film? He's like, all right. <laughs> and he just sort of did this kind of walk, just did exactly the walk that he does in the film, just eyeballing the camera. And I was just like, oh. <gasps> Oh my God, I love that so much. Because he's like this weird sort of figure of death or something. Or I think he's like, she's meeting death in an underpass or she's meeting like, it's like the ghost of her lover, like that she's crossing by like ships in the night, you know, Orpheus and Eurydice or whatever. I was just like getting really excited about it. But at the end of the day, it was just a complete coincidence of chance that this sort of cinematic moment occurred and we managed to get this guy to sign something. Mm. And, like, that is thrilling to me. I mean, I love sort of 70s, 60s, 70s filmmakers, and to me, I'm like, that's what it's all about, especially when it's low budget. Why the hell wouldn't you do that? Like, yeah, that's like a kind of life trick, like a top tip. Like, go out there, <laughs> do it when it's actually a night. Everyone's going to be dressed up looking really scary for a horror film. Yeah, that's yeah. Genius. And also, you know, I think having a Halloween scene in a horror film could be a bit of a cliché, Unless, I was kind of like, the only thing that's going to elevate this is if it's real people, because it'll be much stranger than we can ever imagine. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it was pretty strange. Is it, do you think it helps that, it seems like you're quite laid back with throwing things in in that way. Are you from like an improv comedy background? Yeah, Do you think definitely. that impacted it in any way? Yeah, definitely. I would always say that I kind of, I mean, that, you know, as I said, like I prefer there to be, something better than the thing you've planned. I, th- I always think that there is something that is the perfect thing for that moment. And I'm a bit like that as a performer as well. It's like, you know, if you're doing something and there's a certain magic to it and the crew are laughing, why the hell wouldn't you use that? Because that's like gold dust, you know? And and sometimes there are those sort of magical moments. Um, so yeah, I've used improv a lot in doing theater and, and uh, sort of devised theater when I started out. And also, you know, there are certain directors that really like to use improvisation and, and will let you loose, you know. But to me, it's like comedians, they're not like actors, they're kind of different. They're, you know, it's like actors are like classical musicians and comedians are like jazz musicians. So it's sort of like, why would you be forcing them to play a classical piece when you know that they could give you a solo that would blow your mind? It's, it's sort of like, you know, directing a bunch of comedians. It's like you're trying to make a jazz orchestra. And because to me, like, Comedy is so much about rhythm. It's very musical. And, like, performers have their own rhythms and ways of speaking. So who am I to say to someone who's maybe struggling with a script for no other reason than it just doesn't quite fit in their mouth for whatever reason? And they're saying to me, can I not just say this? Of course they can. You know, it's whatever conveys the meaning. I'm not writing Shakespeare, so I'm not really, really precious about, 
individual words as long as the meaning is the same like yeah. why wouldn't you let people just go for it and be funny in their own way basically because did you um because it seems like that everything's very separate in the film there's moments where you're taken away back kind of and, and it's quite like an emotional journey in a way of something's really scary and then really funny and then quite moving and it is kind of you move around a lot did you film things very separately did the actors know what else was going on yeah in it other was scenes? I mean I was very conscious when I was writing it that there was going to be different styles of filming and different tones that we were trying to achieve so there were certain scenes that I was like I know this will be handheld so it's going to be more documentary style and more trying to create an impression of realism for the audience and then there's other bits that are like your money shots that are going to be not like in the porn <laughs> sense but just more in your sort of like this is going to be a beautiful shot so it's going to have more composure to it and uh, and hopefully people go oh this film's got some cinematic aspirations and this is making me think in a slightly different way now that I'm seeing this and then there's other bits that are special effects that had a lot of practical demands like you're having to shoot very statically because there's a tube with blood squirting here and you can't move the camera because you'd be able to see it. So there was lots of different styles and lots of different, you know, pacing and, and tone, which to me, that was the challenge of shooting a low-budget film. Is To me, a good film is something that gives you a kind of roller coaster. It gives you a highs and lows. And I kind of had this epiphany about feature films that it's much more like a painting or an album or a novel. It's sort of got to, at the end of it, if you're going to feel satisfied, you need to have feel, felt lots of different tones and emotions. Mm. And it's much more about balancing that all out um, than, than the story sometimes. The story's important as well, but I do think, you know, to me it was about creating textures and sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's mm. slow, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's happy. And that was just a bit of a labour of love in the edit. And, and it just meant that sound and music were really tantamount to making the film work, basically. Is that why you like kind of um, mixing the comedy and the horror? Because I was surprised watching the film that I could be so scared and... I mean, you're so scary in it. And <laughs> you're killing people in very um, ambitious ways. But then I'm I'm laughing sure. so much as well. And, and it's like, I was just confused at these two emotions <laughs> that could, could exist together. But is that kind of why you wanted to do it? Because it could just be a horror. Yeah, I mean... I've got a thing about female characters as well that I kind of feel like there's a lot of under-ambition uh, and underestimating the audience in terms of how far they'll go with a female character. And I think that women are very complex. I think that human beings are very complex, but you often are confronted as an actress with very underwritten female characters that only have one level or one message, you know. They don't have anything else going on. So I kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a, a thing that I'm attempting to kind of take an audience on a, on a complex journey with a female character that is making you feel all those complex, conflicting emotions that you are just like, oh my God, I, for some reason I still want her to kill this guy. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, <laughs> and I'm sort of challenging you to, to sympathise with her, even though she's doing wrong things. And sort of trying to prove really to almost like the film industry like people will go with a female character that does this like yeah. people have more empathy for female characters than you think um but it's not like that one female character has to be all female characters because that's no. one thing as well is it's like it's yes it's one pregnant woman 
but if, if anyone tries to draw any sort of conclusion, they're like, women are like this. It yeah. seems really weird because yeah. it's just one very unique person. Well, that's the point I was trying to make with the film, that it is like an individual story. And I think, you know, I sort of talk about Taxi Driver quite a lot in relation to the film because that was one of the inspirations. I was just a bit like, nobody watches Taxi Driver and thinks this is really rude to all taxi drivers. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, whoa, she's really bringing us down as a, you know, by making this film about taxi drivers, it really makes us seem like we're terrible. Or even making the same assumption about men, like, wow, that's such a terrible film about men, as if all men would shave their hair like that and go out and shoot people, you know. And But people do make those assumptions about female characters. They sort of go, what are you trying to say? You're trying to say that all pregnant women are going to kill people or whatever. I mean, I haven't had really much of that at all, which is really refreshing and good. But, um, yeah, that was kind of one of the things that I was really trying to show is that you don't... It's just one person's story. It's idiosyncratic. And if we're going to... You know, there's a big sort of issue about is there enough female directors? And uh, I remember meeting this guy at a, some sort of film festival party and he was like, oh, it's great to talk to you because we're setting up this body where we're funding uh, female film directors. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. And he was like, you know, but it has to be the right project. It can't just be any old project. It has to be the right project. And I was like, right, so you're censoring women's creativity. You're saying, here you go, female directors, here's some money to make your films. But no, you can't make it about that. <laughs> we don't like that, uh, uh, you know, whoever, whoever it is forming this board. But I just think there was an irony in that. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to challenge as well. It's like, you know, in some ways I could have tried to make a film like Suffragette and possibly would have won some more awards or whatever because people would have been like, oh, that's what we need, women making films about really worthy women. I'm not dissing Suffragette, by the way. I'm sure it's a great film. I haven't actually seen it yet. That's terrible. Uh, but, I, you know, you've you got, just got to kind of go, women have to be able to be creative, and if I want to make a film about a woman that's bad, I should mm. be able to do that as well. If I want to make a film that's commercial and is a slasher film, yeah. why shouldn't I, you know... And it's interesting that you're... I kind of haven't spoken about this enough yet, but the fact that you wrote it, directed it, and you're in it is incredible. It feels like... I kind of wanted to ask, because actually I did a tweet being like, you'll never guess who I'm interviewing, can you guess? She's <laughs> got a film out at the moment, she's acting in it, she directed it, and she wrote it, and everyone was like, Alice Lowe. And, and everyone was like, obviously it's Alice Lowe. And I was like, does that mean... It, like, it, does it that mean it's happen. rare? But then does that mean, maybe that's not a gender thing, maybe across the board, maybe is it rare to do those three things all at once? It's funny, because I think people have, and I was very wary of this when I was making a film, people have got a real thing about actors turned directors, and also if you're doing it at the same time, that's a bit of a no-no, like, oh, you might be making a vanity project, oh, watch out, you know. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that almost like, I feel like I've been cornered into doing it, really. I mean, I, I've always loved film, so I kind of think I would have ended up directing anyway. But I do, you do get to this point where you like, I have these ideas, and they often get misinterpreted because it's handed over to the usual male self, safe pair of hands. And, you know, I'm lucky I've worked with some really, really talented male directors. I'm not saying they're getting it wrong. I'm just saying it's their interpretation. And you do get to a point where you're going people aren't quite getting what I mean. And I do think that what I'm trying to do is say something new. It doesn't mean that what I'm saying isn't clumsy or is perfect because I'm deliberately trying to forge ahead with 
kind of break some ground really and and make a tone that is new and does feel fresh and original but sometimes that's going to feel clumsy you know mm. and it isn't going to feel perfect but it it is this thing where i'm sort of i find myself going i've i've had to do this to be able to express myself mm. in the way that i really want to be expressed like um, because I, I feel like, no, it's not quite that, like the way that people are interpreting it. No, it's not quite that. I mean, it was quite an interesting. I feel bad for this guy because he helped us out, basically, when we were doing our first edit of the film. And you get to a point where you're a bit like, what is it again? I don't know. And you show it to some people and you get some feedback. And the editor showed it to a comedy director, friend of his. He's very talented. And he came back and said, I don't really know what you're trying to do with the film but you really need to make the character more likeable and you need to know what she's doing and why she's doing it within the first 15 minutes. And within the first 30 seconds, there needs to be a visual gag. And, you know, and it was just like this and it was very like the Judd Apatow rules of comedy. And I sort of said to the director, this is really useful because this is everything that we're not going to do with the film. We're deliberately not going to do any of these things because this is what this guy would have made of this film. If he'd had to make a pregnancy slasher film, he would have had to go by the book because he wouldn't be speaking from personal experience or from an individual perspective. It wouldn't have been an auteur film. It would have been a standard comedy horror. And I knew that wasn't what I was going to do. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm deliberately making this an idiosyncratic film. Because how do you make genre anyway? It's only like someone makes a good film and other people copy it. So how do you make a new genre? Yeah. How do you make a new idea is you have to you know, break some eggs to make some omelettes. Because the reviews of Prevenge, like, the, the word that I keep seeing everywhere is, like, this is a cult, this is going to be a cult classic. Mm. Do you think, do you find that, like, the ultimate uh, compliment? Well, I love cult films, I really do, but sometimes a bit like, I don't go out for no one to see my work. <laughs> no one really goes out and goes, yeah, I really want about two people to see this film, and then maybe in 34 years' time, some more people will watch it. You know, I, don't, I think you'd have to be mad to say that, you know, but then cult doesn't really mean that these days. I think it does mean that more people, that you hope that it fast-forwards to lots of yeah. people watching it. Um, so, no, I would never take it as an insult because I'm in good company, you know. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's amazing. Like, I, I think my ambition when I'm doing films and even with sightseers as well, I think, you know, my, mine and Steve's thing that we wanted to do was like, people just want us to make a comedy horror, but really we want to make something that ha will stand the test of time. Like, you want people to be watching it in 20 years' time and going, this is still good, it's still funny. And still you know. kind of the one of its kind. Yeah. Because I really, I, one thing I really enjoyed about... Um, you making it is kind of your honesty about how it was made and why it was made and how you had to make it so quickly and how these opportunities don't always come along it's not it, it's <laughs> like you you kind of had to make this film because you was you were offered it at that time in your life and um you were also really honest about like the development kind of process of tv and film and i'm only entering like the tv space kind of only recently with my writing but the idea that something could be in development for like five years or something oh. and <laughs> I think the industry is there's kind of myths there really about how things can happen quickly and and they they can't they don't happen that quickly. I think especially in Britain, I, I think maybe in America they're more fast moving. But I think especially when you're talking about something as a zeitgeist that you're a bit like you've got to do it now. And when you look on the internet, you know how many sort of memes will there be or 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 joke films will there be about that footage of that guy 
with his kids bit interrupting him. It's like people move so fast. And for me, like as a writer and as a creative, I, I'm a bit like a teenager, I'm a bit immature. I sort of get excited about something and then I, I might get bored of it. You know, I might sort of go, well, that was exciting me then, but now I'm on to something else. I'm interested in something else now. But realistically, like film development, because there's so few places in TV as well, in TV and film in Britain, there's only a very few places to get your funding and get something made. But you are on a waiting list, realistically, and they want to be really, really thorough and careful that they're giving money to the right people and that they've made you work enough on those projects that they're good. Um, but, that, you know, you do sort of lose something sometimes in development where you're like, there's a freshness that's mm -hmm. gone here, there's a zeitgeist that's that's you know, that we've lost, someone else has done this project, that does kind of drive me mad. Especially when, as I say, my work is quite idiosyncratic, so I'm not trying to make perfection, I'm trying to make something that strikes people at the time and, and that people talk about. I sort of almost deliberately don't want it to conform to, um, you know, the rules, yeah. basically. It's, it's kind of, I find that quite similar in the publishing industry. Mm, I was really, really nervous before my book came out that by the time it comes out, everyone's going to be like, oh, that's so cringe, she's referenced that app that doesn't exist anymore, or whatever, yeah. because the, the world moves so quickly. Things get dated really quickly. I mean, I was talking to someone who, I can't remember, it was like someone from a platform like Amazon or something, and they were like, we've got a whole slate of stuff that is irrelevant because of Trump. Like, stuff that just feels dated with it, because things are changing so quickly in this era, that crazy era that we're living in, that you know, that's the danger, that suddenly something politically happens that no one was expecting. And suddenly it's like, this project is completely kaput now, basically. So Revenge is so universal, it feels like there's no references really to anything being, although it is kind of, I feel like we were, we were saying just before actually about, it taps into this trend at the moment about kind of perfectionism online and kind of being like, look at my life and my <laughs> 16 children and I'm at the gym at 6am and my life is so great and it's, it can make other people feel a bit alienated. Well, I hope it's anathema to that. I mean, you know, that there's kind of a sense of like, you don't, you don't have to behave in any certain way. I mean, I hope people wouldn't go out and murder people just because they're pregnant. But, you know, I do get the sense of like, some pregnant people have seen the film and have gone, oh, it's such a relief. It's like, you know, especially because I'm lambasting kind of that, whole midwife approach that sort of voice that people talk to you with and the whole baby knows best kind of all of that sort of thing and I think people feel relief to have the to see the piss being ripped out yeah. of that really why, why would people talk to you in a baby voice when you're pregnant because in the film they do they're like babying you and it's like I'm just pregnant like I'm not a different person yeah and it is weird how um you know you know potentially people could think oh she's a pregnant lady you know, maybe she's, maybe she's boring now or something, or mm. she's just a mum. And that's the thing where one of my friends who um, is pregnant at the moment, she said that she just feels invisible. Yeah. Like, in the office, like, no one looks at her anymore, but she feels yeah, totally ignored. Yeah, I mean, ignored. that's kind of some of the themes in the film. I was like, well, you know, if you had to turn all of these things about, about being a woman or be, being pregnant into a superpower, like, invisibility is one of them. I mean, it's, it's really weird. It's like, if I've got a pram... I'm invisible as well, except for the people that hate you because you've got a brown. Um, <laughs> or and like it's like a wheelie suitcase. Yeah, and then sometimes I come out by myself and I'm like, that guy's just like smile at me. Like, because you're so used to being invisible once you're a mum, like people are just like, like that. You're just like, I think that guy's like checking me out. Oh my God, what's going on? This is insane. And like, you forget because you're just 
a mum all the time and you've just got this like pram. Like, um, but yeah, there's like funny, funny stuff that does happen like that. But I kind of was interested in that and felt like, why does that need to be, sometimes it's nice to be invisible. I actually feel that as a woman that, you know, some of your, the elements of being a woman is you can look really different and you can change how people, the appearance is such a key thing for a woman in a way that it isn't for men that, but you can manipulate that if you want to. I think that's why so many pop stars are female is because fem women use that power of transformation, get the odd exception like David Bowie or whatever, but, um, you know, that there's a power in it. And um, the fact that women can be pregnant or not pregnant or attractive or not attractive. And, and, and what if we decided to use that for its powers instead of assuming that it's something that is going to create victimhood within you, you know? And so that was, there was those sort of elements within the film as well. Yeah. And it seems like you're not afraid to be different because I actually went, read a quote that you said in The Guardian about how you you were never like Mary in the nativity or like the main part in a play <laughs> like you weren't like kind of that one that everyone wanted no, to be and you, I, never you was. I think there's I think the title of the article is like I like being the crazy psycho killer person that's fine I uh, I was cast as the witch in Hansel and Gretel like that's literally that was role. the sort of thing that would happen to me is at a school play like they'd sort of go you know Vicky you're going to be the witch and she'd go <laughs> like that and they'd go okay Alice and I'd be like okay <laughs> whatever and I would end up playing all of those parts that no none of the other children would play basically so I was the witch in Hansel and Gretel because the witch is the one that actually like kills them yeah yeah, yeah. So, it's, so it's reflected your <laughs> yeah and I had roles. to scream as I was being pushed into the oven and I remember the teacher going now Alice you have to really scream and I was like ah, like that and she was like no you have to really <laughs> scream and I was like ah and she was like Okay, we'll just have to do it. And on the day, and this was like, literally I was about seven. And on the day, I just did the most blood-curdling scream <laughs> that the children were actually scared. And, every, and the teachers were kind of like, well, I'm still like that. I always, I always deliver on camera, you know? I don't like to give it in the rehearsal. Because, you know, <laughs> that was one of my top tips. Don't, don't spend it in rehearsal. Save it. Save yeah, it for when it counts. <laughs> so even back then, I, I was that. like, you know... Because with, with your career up till now, the fact that you've, you know, you're, you've written and you're in this amazing film, it, was there a moment when you were in other roles or other t you know, TV or film or whatever where you were like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of on the right path now? Because I feel like no. it's, it's, kind of, <laughs> it's hard to know, if in, especially in like this industry, whether you know, oh, okay, things are going well now. Was oh, there God. one moment where you thought, no, it's going, never. going good? I mean, no, I, no. <laughs> I mean, when we got into Cannes, whenever I think that, it's always, like, dangerous, because as soon as you think, mm. like, oh, this is going well, you sort of rest on your laurels a bit, and then you don't get any work, and you forget that, actually, in this industry, especially as a woman, you're just working your ass off 24-7, just trying to not disappear, basically, and, um, you know, carry on being employed in the thing in which you've got your experience and your training. I mean, I've literally seen people comment on things like The Guardian where they're like, well, this TV presenter is complaining now that she's been sacked now that she's 50. Well, she should have thought about that when she was 25 and getting all the work, you know. And you sort of go, you don't, as a woman, go into an industry thinking I'm going to be retired by the time I'm 35. And that is kind of the truth as, a, as an actress. Or, or you might take a hiatus. It's like you sort of stop being employed when you're kind of 35 until 45 and then you can start playing mums again or something. 
You know, Why is it that or, you get to an age and you're just like the big sister or the mum? It, se- it seems I like that well, is a thing. It gets younger and younger now. I mean, I get auditions to play the mum of a 26-year-old. And I know that there's women 10 years older than me who are going, why is she getting my role? You, do you know what I mean? And they'll go as young as they can get away with. So if you're like an eight-year-old, they'll get a 27-year-old to play the mum of that eight-year-old. Do you know what I mean? Because like, everybody has children when they're 19 now, apparently, which is not true because for the first time, there's more women having children over 35 than under 25. That's just mm-hmm. tipped the balance. So you're kind of going and going into a show where you're playing like a mum of teenagers and you're having a chat with the actress and you're saying, how's your two-year-old? And it doesn't tally with reality, you know, like you're a mum of a small child, but yet you've been cast as a mum of someone, a a much older child. And you're like, it's actually not reflecting reality and it starts to be really strange. And um, it wasn't it back to front like a few decades ago, like do you remember in the OC where they were like four, they're meant to be 16, but they're all like in their 30s. We need to bring that bring back. Bring that back. Bring that back, I say. I like, it's like, I like, really, are you 16? I like watching Grease because it makes me go, I've still got a high school musical in me somewhere <laughs> as a student. You know, they're like 35 and going, you know, <laughs> tell me more, tell me more. Like this guy who's like, looks like he runs a burger joint and has got six children. But I'm just like, but, you know, who cares? I mean, I quite often say to people, like, you know, people get hung up on appearance. It's about energy and the charisma of the performance, you know. When you watch Grease, you just go, my God, these people are having fun. <laughs> I watch Grease too, they're having no fun. Like, <laughs> it's just rubbish. Um, that was on the other day, I yeah, think. Yeah, I and, saw it. Frenchie, I forgot that Frenchie's Did in she, it. She's she the only back? One, yeah, the only one that went back. <laughs> yeah, just it's just not there. The energy's just not there. There's a certain camp sort of... Kitschness yeah. to it, which is quite enjoyable, but it's mainly because it's rubbish. Um, <laughs> but you know, you just—it's like when I'm talking to film students, because I sometimes do talks about it, talks at film schools and stuff. I'm sometimes like, don't get hung up about this character has to have blonde hair or whatever. They don't. Just make sure the actor is charismatic, and you don't know where that charisma is going to come from. It's like it doesn't really—it that. You know, you know when someone's watchable on screen. You could just yeah. sit and watch them do nothing. Is um, your advice kind of then to, because I, I mean, I obviously I've never acted in my life, but the I, the casting process of like auditioning and stuff, it, it looks quite brutal because you're obviously it's just intense and it's like in seconds they know if they want you or whatever. So is is the advice kind of like you do have to write your own parts and? Well, I hope not. I mean, I, I really love acting. I re- Sometimes people ask me, do you prefer writing, directing or acting? And I'm like, acting. Acting's the most fun you could have. It's like being a child. You're playing and, you, you, you're, you know, it's freeing and it's brilliant and it's emotional and it's intuitive and all of these great things that are amazing. Um, so I really want to act more. It's, it's, I'm only writing parts for myself because no one else is writing parts for me that I think are interesting. You know, it's very rare that I get offered something that I go, oh my God, this is great, you know. Um, I don't know many actors that enjoy auditions. Mm. I think Tom Hiddleston probably enjoys them, <laughs> but I don't, I hate them. I think they're awful. It's just, it's like asking someone out on a date. It's really awkward. Rejected. Yeah, and being rejected, it's like, you know, it's like going to dinner with someone and, and not knowing whether they're going to ask you out again afterwards. But you have to do it on a regular basis. And you have to learn... Because I don't... Um, 
I haven't have to, had to memorise anything in years, like since like being at school or something and mm. cramming in that stuff. Do, is it is it quite intense with needing to learn? Yeah, I mean, lines? you know, more and more they sort of say that you should learn lines, like in the American way. Because if you're in Ameri- if you're in LA and you do pilot season, they expect you to just be like as if you're ready to film it, basically. And uh, I find that really nerve wracking because as soon as you, it's a different thing you're worrying about if you're worrying about your lines than your performance. Um, yeah, it's just nerve-wracking. It doesn't, it doesn't get any easier either. It's really weird. It's like you'd think that you'd be used to that as an actor, but I don't ever get used to it. I'm always like, oh, my God. Like someone, someone like Paddy Considine doesn't go to auditions. And I'm like, when do I get to that level where I could just say to people, I'm not, you either want me or you don't. It's like Doesn't that, Bill Murray have, like, one phone in his house yes. and it rings? And yeah. he's like, no, <laughs> or yes. Um, but that's it. There's no I've other kind of in-between. I've heard that he doesn't have an agent. He just has an answering <laughs> machine. Yeah, no, I mean, that would be quite cool. But, you know, I'm not at Bill Murray's level. I wish I was. <laughs> I wish I was. It was just, like, interesting parts just came my way and I just had to go, no, yes, or whatever. <laughs> But it isn't like that. I mean, there aren't enough interesting parts for a start. And it feels like as, it kind you know, of doesn't ever end as well, like the hard work, which, you know, it's, it's kind of good to be honest about. But I was interested in, like, the kind of marketing of this film as well, um, from, I guess, you know, the online space and, and having to get it out there. It's, like, hard enough making it, obviously, and then hard enough getting people to kind of watch it. And I just wondered about the challenges of that or anything that you thought maybe in this kind of fast-paced internet crazy world, maybe it's easier for people to find out about things. Um, I don't know. I mean, this film kind of marketed itself because we wanted, people wanted to interview us before we'd even shot it. Because Those when they posters heard... on the tube as well, you cannot ignore. <laughs> well, the posters were great. Like The distribution company did an amazing job with those, but... I think it was a striking idea when people hear about it, like a prevent, you know, a pregnancy murderer, you know, a pregnant murderer. People go, oh, what does that mean? And it sort of um, strikes a chord with people. So, in that sense, it was it was easy to market in that we had got a strong sort of it almost conjures an, an image yeah. in your head. Like so, the one liner, it's like done. It's you're yeah, in. Yeah, but and, and I do think sometimes there are concepts like that that you just go it's not, this is going to be quite easy to market, actually. Um, I think what's harder about it is you, it's, it's lots of different tones within the film, and I was really worried, like, oh, God, there's stuff that's really serious in the film, are people going to go, oh, it's not funny enough, or is it not enough like a horror, or is it not enough, you know, I didn't want to feel like we were mis-selling it to the audience, so that was what was scaring me, is that people would be disappointed when they see it, they think, right, it's going to be like you know, just your traditional slasher film. And, oh no, it's doing other things to me. So um, It's so funny in the film where, because there's a few bits where you, you do get a little bit teary because it's the story of the character, like she's not having a great time. And then just as you're about to be like, oh, I'm so kind of warm and fuzzy, like something really kind of terrible happens. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not feeling warm and fuzzy anymore. I don't think I could allow you to feel warm and fuzzy. That would have been against my sort of pregnancy agenda for the film. I was like, I'm not allowing sentiment to creep in too much. But I did want a bit of a sentiment. It was a bit like, you know, I think comedy horror is quite an established thing. It's quite a British thing. But I did feel like I want there to be a pathos element. And that was the risky element, actually, of making that work because we didn't really know if people would accept that. So you feeling sorry for the character or feeling sad or, or even just having a little think about what it all means, that was quite a risk, really, to take with the film. Mm. 
but I do think that that was what gave it a bit of a wider um, journey that it could go on because it got into Venice which is a very serious film festival and sometimes I think oh it's because we did put some stuff in it that we allowed it to be emotional and we allowed the audience to have a sort of time of con contemplating what this, what is this character going through it doesn't have to be funny or scary it could be just like a human dilemma that we feel like we understand or empathise with yeah and do you think with how it's going to be because it's going to America next yes. being released there so do you yeah. think it's going to be received in any different way there I don't know because I think the humour is very dry so you worry that like maybe the humour won't come across in the same way and I also feel like the, the archetypes in it or the stereotypes in it uh, are very British so you don't know if people will recognise it in the same way but um, I mean so far like we showed it in Toronto we showed it at AFI and we had really amazing responses so uh, yeah, I shouldn't underestimate the American audience to, to be into it, really, because um, so far we've had really amazing feedback. Yeah. I do like how dry it is. It's, <laughs> it's very, very witty and, and dry. You can't help but just chuckle. It is, it is hilarious. Um, but yeah, I was wondering, I guess, what you're looking forward to in the next instalment of everything. And um, now that I guess you now have a daughter who, you know, life has changed for you since filming it in, in a yeah. bigger way. Yeah. How, how logistically does it work now? With Well, I sort of some, sometimes people ask me, like, oh, was it hard to shoot? And I'm like, shooting it was easy. Like, being pregnant and shooting was fine. It was the promotion and the post-production with the baby. <laughs> that was much harder. So I'm kind of taking her around the world with me, really, to, like, different festivals, different Q&As, you know. There's a few where she, uh, she's sat on your lap and you're doing an, a Q&A. Yeah. It's great. But it's that very on-brand as well for the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I won't be able to get away with it for every film that I do because it starts to be off-topic, really. <laughs> Unless I always make a film about a baby <laughs> that's her age. I don't know, but... Um, but yeah, especially at the beginning when I was still like finding my feet with it and literally she was very tiny. So I was like, I've brought her to the festival because I've got no choice. My partner works full time. I don't have any money for a nanny. This was an independent film. Here she is. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like any sort of desire of publicity or anything. It was literally like, I mean, we don't even put the baby on Facebook, for example, and then suddenly she's on the red carpet. <laughs> um, just like sheerly out of practical... That was just the way it had to be, and um, so without realizing you know, though, that is such a, it's a great message because it's not like you're going out and doing that necessarily on purpose. But with all of the background of the film, you can't help but think, oh right, yeah, it is hard to make normal things work without you know that maybe men can do or whatever. I don't know. It, yeah, it brings I mean, up these imbalances. I'm in, involved with an organisation called Raising Films, which helps. Um, not just women, but uh, parents in the film industry, also carers as well, people who might have elderly dependents or, or otherwise, you know. And um, I think it has to be something that becomes uh, applicable to men as well, because you don't want people to use it as a stick to beat you with, like, oh, God, female directors are so much more expensive because you have to incorporate childcare into the budget. Men should be asking for this as well. You know, it's, it's such an antisocial industry to work in in many ways because the hours are so ridiculously long you know and we don't have as powerful a union here as we do in in America where we don't seem to tend to kind of go in for striking and saying no we don't want to be filming at these hours or we should have more rights in, in some ways and I just kind of feel like 
you know, if you, it's don't ask, don't get. It's like, you know, I, I've discovered that, you know, taking the baby to film festivals and you could see almost like people, men and women going, oh, I guess I could have bought my newborn baby. It just didn't occur to me that I was allowed to, you know, and people sort of going, oh, I could have brought my kids. You know, I spend three months of my life shooting, not seeing my kids. And then when I actually get to celebrate it by going to a film festival, I'm not allowed to take them either. Or actually, who's stopping me from doing that yeah. I'm saying not allowed but it's just not the dumb thing but why not you know and I kind of think being more open about these kind of things and just mm. sort of going why why is it detrimental to work to um, I mean I keep going back to this video that I watched yesterday but you know this guy clearly works from home and I did just go this is real life you know people have got their kids in the next room they're struggling to make a living they don't have a nanny they don't have you know, they're just living with their kids and they're trying to make money to for their family yeah. and you're juggling lots of different things. And, and you know, I, I did um, a taster for TV with a comedy group called The Birthday Girls and the editor was like, I can edit it, but I'm at home with my kids. And the kids would just come in. Sometimes they'd be crying, sometimes they'd be hungry, sometimes they would be... I was about four months pregnant at this stage, so I had no idea what it was going to be like, but... You know, I was just like, okay, it does take longer, but it's okay. You do get it done, and and this is real life. This is, you know, especially like in the film industry when you're being asked to do stuff for cheaper and cheaper. It is like, I can do this job, but only if you understand that my kids are going to be here yeah. as well. But you do get the the work done. I mean, this is the thing. I, you know, in post production, I was had a newborn baby on my lap with a laptop, receiving rushes of the film, writing notes and skyping the editor, and doing that with a newborn baby and it was fine yeah. actually I'm not saying that as a sub, sub story I'm sorry, I was all going what else would I have been doing possibly going insane you can't move that much when you got when you're breastfeeding a baby you're just sitting around watching telly really um, yeah. I'm not saying that all women with a newborn baby should be getting to work <laughs> but you know you do you do sort of for me yeah it was what I wanted to do no, like, so and why not a like, really honest uh, open conversation I think the more we talk about it, the better, because there is such a tendency, I think, to maybe be like, oh, everything's fine, I'll just get on with it, but actually, some things, it's better to talk about. Well, for me, that was what kept my sanity, was keeping working. Like, you know, I, I love my work. My work isn't work, it's joy. The, the only complaint I have about my work is when I'm not doing it enough, because I really love what I do, so I didn't really want to stop, you know. Mm. For me, I just wanted to continue, and... Mm. and that was the fear of like having a baby is like society saying you've got to yeah. stop doing like what you enjoy yes thing, you've yeah. got to be a different person now overnight you'll wake up and you'll be a stepford wife and you'll be a completely different person <laughs> and i was like oh my god that's scary you know yeah. and actually by doing the film i kept myself sane i was like oh i am the same person and do you know what me and my partner can sit down and have dinner and talk about something other than the baby mm -hmm. you know and i actually think it's good for the kids as well like yeah. that they are you know, they're part of your world and they grow up sort of with security but feeling like, you part know... Of it. Yeah, that they're not like, oh, my God, centre of attention to yeah. such a crazy degree that they grow up a bit weird. <laughs> well, that's a good segue into maybe some questions, but thank you so much. It's really interesting to hear all about everything. I've been really nosy, so thank you. <laughs> um, does anyone have any questions for Alice? Yay. Hi, Alice. Um, Hi. So this is the first time that you'd directed and written and acted. 
how easy did you find it to direct yourself? So that sense of, ooh, crikey, I was marvellous in that scene, wasn't <laughs> I? Everybody else was really bad. Um, but how easy, how easy is it to be critical of yourself as a director versus you're then self-seeing yourself as an actor? Um, I think it's really important to switch off the critical faculty in a way. Like, I really had to say, I, I can't go back and watch, re-watch what we've just shot looking at myself as an actor. I think that's a bad idea anyway. I think even when I'm acting, some actors like to watch. They're like, oh, can I just watch that back? I never do that as an actor because I, I think self-awareness is a really, really bad thing. Like, you're, you're, my whole thing, striving as a, I'm striving as an actor to not feel like I'm acting, to feel like I'm just in it. I'm just, it's just happening. So what, that is actually really useful when you're shooting in the way that we were shooting because we didn't ever stop. So I was completely immersed in the character all the time. You know, there's very little resetting of lighting or anything like that. It was just sort of 24-7, keeping going, keeping shooting. But also, I mean, I, it was a good exercise in a lack of vanity, actually, because I really was just like, I have to be in this. I, I have to not be outside of it, looking at my performance and going, oh. And then, I mean... It's about trusting your DOP, but really, really trusting your editor as well, because sometimes I might be in the edit going, I hate myself doing that. Don't you just hate me right now? This is terrible. And the editor has to go, no, this is a good performance that you're doing. Because <laughs> sometimes I don't know. And, like, you know, I do look at the other actors and going, they're so much better than me. What is going on? But, um, but then I have to understand that that challenge is good. When an actor comes in and they're brilliant and they're giving me more than I even expected, like they're coming in and they're just nailing the character... That makes me up my game as well. And they're, they're throwing curveballs at me that I'm responding to. And you want to see vulnerability on screen. I think that would be the worst thing, directing myself, is like a sort of smugness, like, I know exactly what I'm doing because I wrote this. Watch this. That would be terrible, you know. So when the actors are coming in and being better than me at acting, there's a kind of fear in my eyes <laughs> that actually makes it more interesting. You know, that's what you want is... I remember reading this Woody Allen thing, you know, who famously directs himself as well. He said, like, actors will want to talk about the performance. Don't let them. And I really agree with that. It's like, you want a freshness. You want a, you want a kind of fear behind the eyes because in real life, we don't know what we're going to say and we don't know what other people are going to say. And that creates a tension, an interesting tension, unless you're trying to create a scene where it's absolute comfort because it's people that know each other so well that they feel really happy and relaxed. Um, Generally, if you're trying to create drama, which is what film and is all about and about what scenes are all about, you want tension and you want conflict. So I want people to feel a bit on edge and a bit nervous. And, and then that translates to the audience as well. I mean, practically as well, what, what I usually do is have someone who is a standard... I mean, we had a stunt double, obviously, because there were certain things that were a bit dangerous for me with a pregnancy bump. So we had a stunt double, but you always have someone in who is sort of your height so you can look at a frame. But after, a, as I said, I, I never watch back. It's like if the DOP, if I look at the DOP and he goes, yes, it's like we move on. Mm -hmm. if, he, if, if he says to me, I don't know if I got everything there or I'm a bit worried about that, I, I'd rather just go again. To me, it's just faster to go again and just get, like, another take. Um, but, you know, that's because you're shooting in a particular way where you're trusting the DOP to swing the camera around at certain moments and stuff. But also, like, you know, there's bits where I'm saying to him, like, you film me because this is going to be a thinking moment for the audience. It's just me looking out of a window. And I was just literally like, 
that'll do, we're moving on. And he'd be like, <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure? I'd be like, yeah, I don't want anything more than that. Like, I'm not, you know, there was no point where I was going like, hang on everyone, I need two hours to get into character. <laughs> I just knew I wouldn't, we'd never get the film made yeah. if that was true. And I just sort of feel like you, I learnt this with sightseers as well. It's like the more that you forget worrying about your performance, actually probably the, the better your performance is because you, you lose some vanity and you lose some... You, you can't have control over it. You shouldn't have control over it. It's like you shouldn't want to control what the audience are feeling. They're going to decide what they think and it's not, it's not your choice. You have no power over it. It's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for Revenge. It's a brilliant film. Well done. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you sort of were saying earlier that you were forced into making this film. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? Because it sounds quite deadly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's sort of off the back of something that we were talking about earlier that I was like, oh, I probably won't talk about this. But um, Jamie Adams, who is director, and he directed Black Mountain Poets, and he's a lovely guy, very talented, but he will provoke you in many ways. So uh, he will hassle you on Facebook until you're in one of his films. And uh, so he hassled me on Facebook until I was in Black Mountain Poets. And that was a five day shoot. And uh, I was like, I don't think it's possible to make a feature in five days. And he proved me wrong. And I really enjoyed it. And again, I, you know, I, I felt sort of relaxed. It was like one of those things where I was like, oh, what's the worst that can happen? And actually, I felt so relaxed that a lot of my skill set, I felt like, oh, it, it actually made me realize that I could make a feature film. I was like, oh this was improvised and it turned out okay. So in theory, I should be able to do this again. So he got in contact with me. He's like the only person that would contact a six and a half month pregnant woman and say, do you want to do some work? You know, <laughs> no one else would really dare to do that. And like, and I was a bit like, no, Jamie, I'm pregnant. Come on, you've got three children. I'm not going to make a film now, am I? Like, um, and he was like, I don't know. <laughs> do you want to make a film? And I was like, actually, I do want to make a film. Of course I want to make a film. Also, he provoked me by going, have you got anything for Cara Delevingne? <laughs> Which I was like, no, I do not have anything for Cara Delevingne. If I'm going to make a low-budget project which sacrifices my pregnant time uh, at, at risk to myself, I'm going to make a project for me, and it's going to be me <laughs> as a starring role, and I'm going to get some work out of it. And he was like, okay, then. Do it. And that was, it was kind of like I was sort of provoked into doing it, which is why Brett Jamie is so, so good that he kind of makes you do stuff out of being angry with him. <laughs> which is actually why we have quite a good relationship because that's what he, that's what he brings out in me. I was sort of like, no, Jamie, of course it's this. And he's like, okay. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. So, you know, that was the sort of discussion that we had that kind of made me do this film. And um, even... And then I gave him this, this pitch because originally he wanted to direct it and he was like, do you want to script something and maybe be in it? And I was like, uh, okay, here it is. And he was like, this is great, but I can't direct this because I don't make this sort of stuff. Did he say it was too dark for him? Yeah, yeah. well, he makes rom-coms, like gentle rom-coms <laughs> with a lot of chatting, you know. And, um, and there's special effects in it and stuff like that. He was just like, you know, this is your story to tell, which I kind of knew was probably true. Um, so then he was like, I think you should direct it. And I was like, oh, my God. But at the same time, I knew it was probably a good thing to do. But even then, I was like, yeah, but they're not going to let me do it. They're not going to let me do it. There's going to be some insurance reason that I can't do it. 
And then there was, you know, I'd be seeing my friends and they'd be like, so what are you doing now? You're kind of resting, yeah? Put your feet up now. <laughs> and I was like, I'm making a feature film. <laughs> and they were all like, what? And I was like, don't worry, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen, you know, it's like, so not gonna happen. And I remember like, I was going somewhere to do some talk about filmmaking in Devon. And I was like, oh, I should probably do some work about this feature film. You know, I've written the script. I should probably like try and get my head around it. And I bought this Baby's First Steps book in Paper Chase. And um, I got on the train, I was sat opposite this lady who was kind of smiling at me in quite a nice way, because she was like, oh, you're pregnant, that's quite sweet. <laughs> and um, I got this Baby's First Steps out, it was all pink with a giraffe on it, and she was like, oh, that's quite sweet. And I opened it, I just started defacing it with a <laughs> green marker, and she was just like that. <laughs> and I just was like, that's one of the scenes in the film. And I just put that into the script. Um, because it, it became my workbook. I, was, I only bought it because I was like, this is going to be my kill list. It's going to be in this book. And I'm going to sort of, you know, come up with some of the visual ideas for the film, but also do some of the backstories for some of the characters and sort of build it up with like little pictures and collages and stuff like that. But I'm going to completely destroy this book, you know, and make it crazy. So um, that was one of the first points at which I was like, right, I've, I've got to get my head around directing this and making sure that it's not rubbish and that it has got some depth to it and some texture and some life to it. Definitely. It had to be you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've got maybe time for one more question. I'm sorry, I do really long answers. I'll try to be better. You're the perfect podcast guest. It's all about you. <laughs> um, at the back there, thanks. Hello there. Um, Emma had asked a question about the almost the digital promotion of the movie, and I was thinking that festivals seem almost a, quite an analog way of promoting. And I was wondering what value the festival circuit still gives you. We certainly heard about the film through the London Film Festival, okay. for example. Um, when you say analog, what do you what do you mean on CD-ROM? <laughs> In the sense of um, you know printed brochures and posters and just a sort of oldie-fashioned way of getting the word out versus what you said earlier about Googling a made-up word like Prevenge, which stands out and is easy for, for people to search for in a digital environment. And I was just wondering how the, the festival, people sort of hearing about it in that sort of old-fashioned way still counts for a lot of value versus the digital way of people finding out about the, the films. Um, I would say that festivals have their very faithful return audience who are going to go and see whatever is on offer. And that's what's great about it, is you've got a ready-made, very keen audience who are almost like, I'm going to see as many films as I can. I don't even really care what the content is. If it's in this festival, I trust that it's good. So then you've got a really full audience and people that are ready to see genre and they're ready to see crazy stuff as well. So it is different. It is definitely feels different, but in a good way. And I think... I think starting out making films, I really had no recognition or understanding of what it is that festivals do for you and how it can help you. So having done Sightseers, I kind of suddenly realised, oh my God, there's this whole horror network which is just there. And that's such an important thing about making horror is there is a path and a journey for your film to go on and you will be playing to sold out audiences because of horror festivals. So horror festivals are huge because there's just this audience that you know, have gone to sit jazz to see as many horror films as they can. And they wouldn't necessarily see your film 
in a cinema, they would see it because it was at that festival and they'd made the trip to go and see it. Um, so I, I, I kind of think it works together, really. And then, you know, through your festivals, hopefully you get a distributor to see it who then picks up the film and then you get all your kind of more digital, you know, marketing through whoever is then employed to market the film. And hopefully there's some sort of pincer action where it's, you know, people who are film nerds or horror fans or whatever coming together within the general public who you're, you're trying to reach in a, in a different kind of way. And I'm sure there's loads of tumblers and fan accounts and, you know, like deep, dark corners of people loving this film as well. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. That's what's quite interesting. Like, <laughs> like you say, if you're a fan of horror, you're going you're gonna to find out about it, whether that's in real life or online. Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's just a different way of viewing films. I mean, certainly having gone to these festivals, I end up seeing films that I never thought I would go and see. So it is it is a bit more of that potluck kind of experience and, and you're caught you're caught up with the, the live experience of it. That's the thing that makes it not, you know, opposed to the digital thing of like street you know, streaming like oh, this thing's become available on Netflix now, I'll watch it because I saw someone tweet about it. It's like there's literally you are seeing people and they're going, I just came out of that and it was brilliant and so you're like, Oh, I'm gonna go see that tomorrow because it was like word of mouth. Yeah. So it is it is different. And you know, I, I also try to do as many, um, you know, I've just done a UK tour where I was doing Q and A's. So it's this whole other level of actually presenting the film, which is you're adding to the live experience of like being in a cinema of the whole point of seeing it on the big screen. Cause you know, people are gonna see you talking about the film and, and stuff, you know, which again is like, how do you get people into the cinema now that everything's changing in the way that people view things it's such a film to watch in a group or in a cinema yeah. though I feel like I watched it on my own and wanted wanted to see other people's reactions definitely. I was jumping but I was like I wanted to be in that environment I think yeah definitely it does change it completely um I think being being in an inf it, it, watching it with a group because people's reactions to it are really hilarious yeah. like there's not just laughter but kind of gasps weird noises that I've not heard people Groans. do before yeah <laughs> I love it it's great but it does it does change it completely I remember like seeing um Kill List I don't know if you've seen Kill List and I watched it at home on my laptop and I was like Jesus this is just a unremittingly dark film and then I saw it at Fright Fest and I was like oh it's funny oh there's bits of it that are funny I had no That's idea like drink. I just didn't really realize <laughs> yeah. like it's just made it into a completely different experience. And I do think there's elements with this film as well. That yeah, if you Halloween dress-up screenings. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be brilliant. That would be a great That idea. would be the aim. I'm sure, I, I hope that some people will invite us to do some Halloween yeah. I want to dress screenings. up as the Cardiff skeleton man. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. That was really fascinating to hear all about it. And, um, yeah, you've been an amazing person oh, to well, interview. Oh, thanks for having so. me. <laughs> thank you so much. The and everyone out in America. I yeah. know that we're all in the UK now, but just in case anyone listening, to the podcast the film's out in America on the 24th of March and how long is it still in the UK cinemas for? Um, it's still popping up in the odd sort of regional art centre type place but you'd have to if you look at prevengemovie.com you'll be able to see all the details about where it's screening well congratulations thank you and it's also thank going to be you. on Shudder as well which is a new horror Netflix type oh, cool. um, streaming platform it's so, a good name. Yeah, it's very good. Excited <laughs> you know what it. you're going to get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Yeah, thanks Thank for you. coming. <laughs>